Hello and welcome back to the RegTech Legends podcast. I am your host, Tom Richardson, and today we're joined by a guest who needs no introduction. A man who is not only kind, funny and always fascinating to talk to, but one who has, along with his colleague Ray Blake, done as much to raise the profile of efforts to prevent money laundering and financial crime as just about anyone. Uh, I am, of course, talking about Mr. Graham Barrow. Graham and Ray host the hit financial crime podcast, The Dark Money Files. Um, I think they've had well over 100 episodes and uh, well over half a million downloads. Now, I have to be honest with you, I really enjoyed doing this interview with Graham. Um, We could easily have spoken for another two, three, four hours, just I had so many questions. Uh, And that's just something that happens when you're talking to someone who has an incredible amount of life experience uh, as well as deep domain expertise nonetheless we did manage to touch on politics on some of the whistleblower events and data leaks over the last few years where the industry is heading but as always we must begin at the beginning and uh, here's graham to tell us where his journey into regtech began so i think it would be fair to say that my my entire career path since leaving school has been following the path of least resistance because um i left school at 16 uh in 1970 which will give you an idea how old i am aging um, yourself there <laughs> uh, that's okay i'm fine with it and, and back in the day there was a thing called the youth employment bureau in in 1970 and you, you trotted along and they they gave you a bunch of cards and they said pick a card because every card had a job on and uh, see what you fancy. And, and one of the jobs had, had a week staying in a hotel while you did your training. I'd never stayed in a hotel before. So I thought, I'll have some of that. So I got the job and it turned out it was a lie. I never stayed in the hotel. Um, <laughs> but it was, a, it was a company called the Guardian Royal Exchange, which is an insurance company, which doesn't exist in that form anymore. Um, but it wasn't insurance. I went into what was called the trustee and executive department, which was looking after people's money. And it was quite interesting. Um, so I did that. And in fact, I did that for two companies um, up until I was 20 and met my first wife. Um, and um, I, her dad owned a fish and chip shop and his, uh, the lease on it was expiring and they were leaving. And he offered my first wife and I the opportunity to to buy a share in the lease, which we did with our wedding present money for when we got married at the ridiculously young age of 20. So um, I found myself at 21 running a fish and chip shop, which was not a career plan, um, <laughs> uh, which we did. Well, I did for the next 10 years. Where was the fish and chip shop? It was in in the sunny climes of Richmond, uh, on Thames. Ah. Um, not not necessarily in the very best of parts of Richmond, but actually that's not really where you want a fish and chip shop. So we were on one of the approach roads to Richmond. Uh, very handily, it was actually the approach road also to Twickenham Rugby Ground. So um, we got some decent business out of that. So um, it was on a fairly busy road and and. I used to get up in the morning twice a week very early and go to Billingsgate Market and buy fish. And and I ran a fish and chip shop, as I say, for, for 10 years until my first marriage ended. And I had to sort the finances out. So I um, sold it. What? Uh, so so this would have been, was it the, the sort of mid 70s to mid 80s? 
It was, uh, yeah, 74, I think, to 83 or 84. So, so absolutely spot on, yeah. So if, if, if we met Graham Barrow somewhere between 1974 and 1984, who would we be meeting? Um, well, he'd be meeting quite paint, a young chap with hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, both of those things no longer exist. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, a very hard working. I mean, the thing about running a fish and chip shop, we were open ultimately uh, six days a week. Uh, and as I say, a lot of that time, I used to buy the, my own fish from Billingsgate. So I, I learned the value of hard work and long hours. Um, and I was very fit because I was on my feet most of that time. I was shifting, you know, half hundredweight sacks of potatoes and, and all sorts of stuff. So uh, probably the fittest I was ever in my life when I was running that shop. Mm. Um, and, and I guess, uh, you know, I, I probably learned a lot of the communication skills I now possess by, by trying to be pleasant to, to people who are not always <laughs> easy to be pleasant to but there you are when you earn a living by serving the general public you you kind of learn that you have to kind of you know swallow it sometimes and, and yes yeah and I, I imagine in in that line of work you you come across inebriated people from time to time too you did um I was lucky I never I really never had any trouble in in the shop while I was there oddly the chap who bought it from me within three months somebody put a lump of concrete through his window so I don't know what he was doing but I I, I I'm lucky I'm I, in those days I was very fit I'm six foot six so I'm not a small chap uh and I I you know because it was a very physical job doing fish and chips you know making batter and shifting potatoes around I I I could you know, I was quite imposing. I'm not an aggressive person at all, but people would look at me and think, you know, I'm probably going to think better of that. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was very kind of self-policed, yeah. Yeah, but all, all, uh, well, so that period of time came yeah. to an end. It did, with my marriage. Um, I had a couple of years running a video library, and then I thought I, I needed to just, I needed to sort out the divorce settlement so I needed a job and I was walking past an estate agent and I thought how hard can it be to sell houses so I walked in and said can I have a job and they said yes um so I started selling houses it's um you know, estate agency and recruitment have a low barrier for entry they do they, they're good they're good like that <laughs> <laughs> they really do but I actually loved it I, I there are elements of estate agency I wasn't very you know, uh, impressed by it doesn't have high standards of morals, but I actually quite enjoyed the taking yeah. people around, showing them houses. Uh, I was interested in houses anyway, so so that was quite good fun, and that led me into the whole financial services thing because we started doing mortgages and all the rest of it. So that was my my path in the uh, mid eighties into where I am now. Fantastic. So so you said it kind of led into what you were doing now, but. Um, how how do, does one go from estate agency to um, to to training people in how to find yeah. the bad guys? Um, well, so I, I found out that although I was interested in financial services, I wasn't actually a particularly good salesperson. Partly because I, I guess I have this ridiculous honesty, and, and I found that I couldn't sell stuff to people if they didn't need it, and that. The time in the late 80s wasn't how it worked, and endowment mortgages particularly. Um, but I did find I was very good explaining to my colleagues how stuff worked, and they used to enjoy at team meetings. I would kind of do these little sessions on, you know, products and and the technicalities and how they worked with different types of people. So that led me eventually to get a job as a full time 
trainer with with a company that's now called LV Equals. It was then called Liverpool Victoria, and and I loved it. And do you know, I think honestly, Tom, there's a kind of the, the most magical thing that can happen to anyone in this life is is to to find themselves in a job which is not only reasonably well paid but which they enjoy doing it yes. is just i once i once read a thing that said the secret to a, a, a successful and happy life is to find what you enjoy doing most and then get someone to pay you to do it <laughs> and and i kind of felt that way about training I, I i just loved standing up in front of a group of people and capturing their attention and imagination and all right it was insurance products not the most exciting thing in the world but i thought it was important and i just loved doing it and that's you know so, so I, and that was how i met Ray, you know, the other half of the Dark Money Files and and how we, we started eventually on this journey that's led us to financial crime fighting. Fantastic. Out of interest on, on the, you know, getting into training, did you have any training on becoming a trainer? Or? No, um, no. And in fact, it's one of those things when I wouldn't say I lied on my application, but I certainly enhanced aspects of what I've done previously. <laughs> um, but I guess what got me the job was was having to go and stand in front of a of a group of people and deliver ten minutes of training and and you can't you can't busk that you can't make that up yeah. it's, it's one of those things it's like you know you can you can fake knowledge if you really want to but you can't easily fake personality and uh, personality probably counts for a lot when you're in a in a employment situation you need the right people to work so um i think they just looked at that 10 minutes and thought he really can do that and we're prepared to take a chance on me because i was in my late 30s by then i wasn't a young person to mm. have a change of career but um yeah so that was um thank you very much for having that faith in me um you know who you are if you're listening well you can name them if you'd like well, there was a lady called Julie Swanston, and and Julie and I actually had a bit of a falling out eventually, which was a shame because she, um, uh, she, you know, she she believed in me, and she didn't have to, and gave me that opportunity. So I was grateful for that, and and it changed my life. Fantastic. The yeah, I do think that talent has a way of making itself known um, over a long enough period of time. Yes. Uh, one of the challenges there is recognizing that, that you have the talent that you have. I have spent a lifetime suffering from imposter syndrome, so yeah. I, I, I've, I've always rather doubted myself. And it's only really in the last couple of years, but it's a bit late that I have come to appreciate I have some really useful gifts, and, and they are gifts in a way. I can't say I've, you know, I, I didn't work to get them; they were always there. I've improved them, but. Um, but the ability to, to to talk reasonably fluently and and to learn quickly are just wonderful gifts, and I'm very grateful for them. Do you, so so you were working as a trainer. This is where you yep. met Ray at yep. LV Equals, but yep. but that wasn't on uh, financial crime related subjects oh. at that time, was it? No, it was. Um, we were doing a lot of technical training around insurance products, and also some skills training and management training. Um, so, so Ray, actually, I met because we employed him originally as a freelancer. And then both of us eventually ended up as contractors. Um, and then we got on so well, we thought, well, let's go into business together, which we did. But but that business was very much about training insurance products. And it was only because I, I inadvertently accepted a contract that I thought was for an investment product and turned out not to be, um, that, I, that I found myself where I am today because... The word PEP, which of course in our world has a quite specific meaning, also used to stand for a 
a personal equity plan and I, <laughs> I was asked if I could do some pep training and I genuinely thought it was on personal equity plans and, and it wasn't and by the time I realized I'd said yes so I just had to learn very quickly <laughs> It's like that's, the Steve, the Steve, is it the Steve Jobs advice? Say yes and then figure out how that, to do it that after. Was, that was exactly what happened. it. it I, I was actually due to be starting another contract, which got cancelled at the 11th hour. And I was offered this replacement contract training peps. And I just said yes, because I needed the work. And, and they happened to say, and there'd be other financial crime elements. And I thought, that doesn't make any sense. And so <laughs> I went on the internet and thought, that's not the pep I thought it was. And I just spent three days learning enough to not sound stupid in the interview. And uh, it turned out to be another life-changing opportunity because it was a, a very well-known private bank and they were in some trouble with the regulator. And I spent two years traveling the world. I mean, it was joyful. I literally traveled the world, all points of the world uh, with this private bank, training them on, on PEP policy. It was fabulous. What sort of year are we talking about there? 2010. 2010. Well, I was going to say, oh, maybe it's one of those things where it's so early on in the industry that not many people knew about it. And so it was easy to become an expert. But by 2010, that's not really the case. No. So you must have had to assimilate rather a lot of information quite quickly. I, I did. I Again, you know, a function of getting older is your memory not quite as good, but but it, I have or had what's called an eidetic memory or, or photographic memory. So uh, at points in my life, I you know, I, I had the ability to remember enormous amounts of stuff very, very quickly. So I could assimilate knowledge at speed, um, which is, as I say, it's a gift and it's a very useful one. Yeah. Do you, you, that's something you hear about a lot, isn't it? Do you have any concept of, um, of how many people possess that kind of uh, memory? Um, no, I, and it's, it's very odd. And the reason it's called photographic is that I, I didn't realise for years that my memory was that different from other people's until I had this video library. And somebody said one day, you never asked me for my name or card. I said, well, no, because I know it. And they said, well, how do you know it? You must have hundreds or thousands of members and I said well I just do he said no I can't believe that so I, I we had a great big box of cards so I said well test me on it so he would just pull out a card at random and say a name and I would say the address and I'd actually say stuff like oh that's the card with a little squiggle in the bottom left hand yeah. corner <laughs> and, and it, it, I just didn't really appreciate it but but then you realize when someone's jaw drops so that's not a common thing so um that was probably the point I thought well if I've got such a good memory I should probably make more use of it um, and so you went to Vegas um started yeah. counting cards <laughs> I, I really should have done but but no <laughs> <laughs> well we're glad that you didn't I I started doing quiz nights <laughs> <laughs> Because most of the stuff I remember is trivia. <laughs> Fantastic. So working for this private bank, traveling the world and actually yep. training other people on politically exposed persons, that was the first step into uh, the world of financial crime. It absolutely was. And, and it was a fantastic learning ground because as that as that contract um, developed, they asked me to do other uh, high risk and then uh, other elements of the, the financial crime policy and ultimately ended up down in Bristol um, setting up a remediation programme for their lower medium risk clients. So that two years was just the best university for learning the basics of financial crime you could ask for. So, um, and then I was... <laughs> 
I was going to say I was fortunate, kind of fortunate, because I had a phone call from a from a headhunter who was working for a well-known global bank who were about to hit the headlines, um, and they needed somebody to get involved in some of the training elements. And that it's public record now; it was HSBC. Yeah. Um, so I had kind of catapulted from from one bank in in domestic trouble to one in in global trouble, and and within a matter of a week, I found myself in Mexico, which it was quite something well tell tell us whatever you are allowed to tell us about that experience well i would say hsbc i think it's pretty well known that uh, they got fined uh nearly two billion dollars for for a whole raft of issues the one that caught the headlines was the the mexican business which was yeah. repatriating massive amounts of dollars that could only have arisen from you know the, the the drug trade so i pitched up in in mexico city at hsbc headquarters I, I suppose the most memorable thing i had i mean it was quite memorable um but i i was asked to go and train the team out in uh, monterey which is where hsbc had a, a separate satellite office and monterey happens to be in the heart of the drug cartel country so you have to go through quite some hoops to 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 get out there and 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 you know they're obviously they're quite careful hsbc but um i ended up in a <clears throat> excuse me in a in a secret location on the outskirts of Monterey training the team with all sorts of security arrangements about being picked up because you know the risks out there were quite high so that wasn't something that my yeah my, my standard training of preparing yeah. for. Do, and is was the the thinking that there was a risk to you specifically because of the work that you were doing? So above and beyond, you know, being a um, Brit over there and having to just be a bit mindful. Yeah, I, there was a risk because obviously HSBC. I mean, it was you know the, the the heart of the problem was actually up in the north of the country because that's the only place in Mexico that you can pay dollars in uh, dollars you can't have dollar accounts in mexico except if you're within 60 miles of the u.s border because the the cross-border trade is quite in, intensive um and where i was i mean the, the journey between the airport and the location is, is known as kidnap alley because so many people are kidnapped by um the various uh, cartels um uh, and they're not very nice to the people they're kidnapped. I'm being okay. absolutely honest. So, um, so there was some risk, and and there was an additional risk. I mean, I, I genuinely not sure that I was under that much risk. I never felt terrified, but but you know, you, there's a lot of armed guards around. This is this is something. I mean, even the HSBC office in in Mexico City is protected. The, the security guards there have you know semi-automatic machine yeah. guns. This is this is not a place where if you haven't got your pass out, somebody says, where's your pass? They point the gun at you and say, where's your pass? So <laughs> you tend to always wear your pass. And and so that I mean that was an interesting time, isn't it? In what followed yeah. there, obviously HSBC beefed up their operations a lot. And I mean I, I remember that because um you know, they were hiring something like 100 KYC analysts a month at one point, weren't they? They, they pretty much exhausted the, the global supply uh, and then some. So, um, you know, I, I guess in, a, in a, another way, that was a bit of a career maker for, for lots of people, too. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, lots of people would have started their career by by going in as a, you know, as a trainee analyst uh, at HSBC because because the demands were quite high. And of course, I, I kind of held a frying pan into the fire because I went from there to to Deutsche Bank. Um, 
uh, prior, it was actually prior to some of their, their, their woes starting because I was actually going as a small project looking at KYC utilities. And then, of course, things kicked off. And given yes. I had some experience in some of those elements, I got drafted in to work alongside their MLRO on working with the FCA, um, who were now you know, camped in the building um, to facilitate their review of, of you know, the issues at, at Deutsche Bank. And uh, obviously I do need to be careful about what I say here, but yeah. again, it's public record that, that I was there and, you know, and, and I was kind of fairly involved in the, um, the mirror trade thing and, and with the, um, the overall thematic review that, that the FCA were doing at Deutsche. So, yeah. So at the private bank, HSBC, and then Deutsche, had in each case you'd gone there prior to there actually being a incident. Oh yeah, I want to be quite clear about this. I, I followed the trouble. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't cause it. You're like the financial crime compliance version of Jeremy Clarkson. You know how every yeah. time he sells a car, about two, uh, six months later, they become really valuable. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I got. I got a text at one point that said, is, is, is it true I was changing my name from, from Graham Barrow to the Graham Reaper? <laughs> 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 because well, everywhere I went, there seemed a big trouble followed. But, um, I, you know, sometimes you're just lucky in life. And, and I think I was lucky in the respect that I, I, I had something of a reputation of being a reasonably safe pair of hands yeah. in difficult circumstances. And... Um, and and also very, you know, I treat the information that needs to be confidential, confidentially. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but I've worked with some incredible journalists across the world. And the thing about that is, if you're going to do that, they, if they're going to share information with you, they have to know that you will not go and distribute that information around, you know, around all and sundry. So guarding that sort of information is really important. Yeah. Do you, uh, um, I would actually like to get on, onto that. That would be fascinating. But um, before we do, just give us a, tie, a sense of the timescales now. So uh, you, you were involved with Deutsche. Deutsche 2016 to kind of 2019. And then um, I had a bit of a health scare in 2019. So, so I, I kind of stepped back and that's why we started the podcast because um, I, I, uh, I, I, turned out to be fine but but at one point they thought I might have cancer so I was having all sorts of tests done which are qu quite invasive uh, yeah. I, I am not going to tell you whether or not I had <laughs> cancer but it's it's one place is the man you think I don't really need to be having tests yeah. here um so um I had some quite invasive tests and and I, I needed something to do so I said to Ray do you fancy doing a podcast and he said yeah, why, why not? You know, and it was a little vanity project. And, and he came up with this name of the dark money files. I just, ah. I, in fact, I, I preserved that WhatsApp chat for, for posterity because my instant reaction was, that's a great name, right? Um, so we, we just started doing the podcast because I just I needed to fill my time while I was not able to work. So um, and then it, it just caught hold. It really did, you know, so we were so glad that you did start that podcast. So I remember when it first came out, it being sort of shared with me as uh, something to keep an eye on. And it felt like in a very short space of time, suddenly mm. it had a huge following. Mm. Um, I said I would I would record the intro to this uh, afterwards. And uh, one of the things I was going to say is like RegTech podcasting royalty, because it probably I, I actually need to check the numbers, but it must be the most popular uh, sort of financial crime I... podcast out there. 
I suspect so. I mean, we get into the um, the Apple UK business charts every every episode. I mean, we really? actually figure on them. I think the highest we've ever been is thirty nine, which I'm still quite. I think that's pretty decent. Yeah. Um, I I think our over uh, our overall unique downloads for the entirety of the thing now is approaching four hundred thousand. Oh wow! Um, so it, it is pretty significant. Um, you know, we we we, uh, we we always get a thousand downloads first day of of release, and and most episodes get three to four thousand, I, I guess, in the first three months. So, I mean, if, you know, compare that to you know my mate Jamie Bartlett and the Missing Crypto Queen, it's pretty rubbish. But but then he's got the BBC working for him, yes. so that's all right. You know? <laughs> so on that subject, how would you like to to kind of characterise some of the stuff that you've been doing more on the journalism side? Global financial crime scandals, that's probably worse for me. You know, um, laundromats obviously is the thing that they tend to be, but but major. Uh, whistleblowing leaks to journalistic enterprises that indicate that all is not well in the world of finance. Yeah, it was funny. I found myself reading a Bloomberg article a couple of days ago, and it was talking about the the potential for fintechs uh, in London to facilitate money laundering if we're not careful. And I, and I, as I read the headline, I was like, "There's going to be a quote from Graham." In there. <laughs> I, I I just knew in advance that would be the case. Of course, there was. Yeah. So. So you're obviously now recognised as a go-to person for this sort of thing. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think two things. One is is the journalism. I, I you know I did give Donal the guy who wrote that some background assistance in the preparation of that. It was actually concurrent with there's a Transparency International report which I think is called um, Together in Electric Schemes. You, you need to be a 1980s pop fan to get that illusion um uh, looking at electronic money institutions but i think yeah the two things one is you get shared information ahead of publication you do not leak that to anybody and two the ability to put together a few words into some cogent sentences which then translate into a quote in a report so if, if you can speak reasonably fluently and and you've got good confidentiality then you become a trusted source for journalism yeah. Some of these whistleblower scandals uh, that you have been involved in the uh, in investigation and reporting of yeah. on, these are significant events with significant ramifications for certain people. And some of those people are, are not the nicest people in the world. So it takes, from a journalist point of view and anyone involved in those projects, someone to be quite brave to, yes. to kind of get involved in it. Um, I mean, how did that come about for you? Um, yeah, and, and it's a really important point, actually, Tom. That, I mean, I, I talk about you know my role in these things, but actually, it's the people who 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 have the bravery to leak this stuff in the first place who really should get the plaudits because um, some of them it's career changing. Um, there's a guy, there's a guy called Howard Wilkinson who who was the guy who leaked, well, who 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 has been outed as a whistleblower for Danske Bank. I'm not I'm not sure that he necessarily leaked. To the Danish newspaper that published it, but he certainly blew the whistle, and it may have been to a regulator. But but that's been career defining for him because he lost his job and he now finds it difficult to work, um, and is forever associated with that. And and it was a newspaper, not the one he 
Dictu, obviously, that named him, and that was kind of a bit unnecessary. But so I'm always slightly in awe of whistleblowers because it is a huge thing to do. Um, but it also emphasizes to me the the importance of playing my role, which is you know don't make life harder for them by by disclosing unnecessarily the information that they they come out with. But you cannot overemphasize the the, the importance of the role that whistleblowers have played in the battle against financial crime. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, you know, there are vested interests that work within banks who don't really want their worst stories getting out yeah. into the public domain because it's not good for the share price. It's not good for the reputation. But the other thing is that, that very often um, it's, it's only whistleblowers and journalists who've got the global reach to bring these stories to the public attention because they don't have the same concerns that law enforcement might have in in working across different jurisdictions because i mean the idea for example that the uk and the estonian and the russian and the ukrainian and other law enforcement would have worked together on the danske bank story is frankly laughable because they're not natural bedfellows but investigative journalists in those countries are very happy to work together i was astonished and rather honored to be asked over to hamburg um at the it was the start of the fincen files and this was a year before they were ever published um to to do a presentation to the gathered journalists in a in a secret location in hamburg um because they needed background knowledge before they started addressing the stories that the FinCEN files were going to reveal. And, and there were, I think, about 160 journalists there from all over the world who'd, who'd come there. And it's quite something to be part of um, uh, an operation which for a year managed to operate in entire secrecy, not a single leak, um, prior to the go public date of the FinCEN files. So, you know, and these stories have changed the, the, the way that we look at financial crime, they've certainly changed the conversation. Yeah. Um, they've changed legislation. You know, I think it's without a doubt that, that we have the transparency here in the UK directly as a result of the Panama Papers. Um, the, these stories, and people have mixed views on, you know, the FinCEN files particularly were quite polarising because they were leaking SARS. Yes. Um, but actually, ultimately, I think we'll be able to see that they've done good because they have they have created the impetus for important changes in the way that we deal with things. And I'm a wholehearted proponent of transparency. Yeah. Do you, um, the, uh, the listeners of this show uh, can be quite a mixed bag from people who are uh, practitioners, people who work yeah. for vendors, uh, but also we seem to, to have some listeners relatively new to the industry. Would you be able to just sort of give a, a bit of an overview of the, the Panama Papers and what the yeah. impact of that was on legislation? Because that's a, a really important one. Yes. Um, so for I mean, if you go back to the, I suppose, the 80s, um, the growth of offshore has been huge. And, and, and the reason that offshore is, is attractive is because it allows people to create um, legal entities uh, masking their ownership of those. And these entities are very useful for uh, depositing assets whose provenance is at the very best suspicious. And, and the reason they can do that is because um, there are lots of um, corporate service providers, and Mossack Fonseca was one of them, who are prodigious in the quantity of, of um, companies that they created. And they were um, prepared to do that for a variety of some quite unsavoury people. Um, so you had you know, senior politicians and other government officials, uh, organised crime and others who were creating entities in places like 
the British Virgin Islands and, and others, um, where it was impossible to know who was behind those companies. And, and it allowed money to move around the world, um, to use Oliver Bullough's wonderful phrase, in money land. Yes. Um, uh, without any sight of uh, or, or interrogation from law enforcement or others. And the, the Panama Papers was somebody leaked a huge amount of that Mossack Fonseca database to, um, to journalists who then shared it through the uh, International Consortium of Investigative Journalists because it was far too big a job for any one journalist to try and deal with. And it was kind of like a, um, a, a peer uh, you know, effort. It was a, 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 a shared effort across uh, of many journalistic institutions who who co you know who united and brought it um to, to the public on a kind of on a big bang date um and i think for the first time it lifted the veil over what was going on in offshore that is i mean i, I want to be really clear just because just it's offshore doesn't mean it's criminal yeah but but if, but if it's criminal and it's global it will involve offshore you know yes that's, that's the difference and and it lifted the veil and people saw for the first time uh, and has con have continued to see with subsequent leaks and obviously pandora papers being the very last one um just the level of of corrupt actors who use these um, structures to to mask the assets that they own and it is a scandal of of mind-boggling proportions yeah do you, uh, and there have been you alluded to the specific legislation that has kind of followed yeah. there yes so so what what then happened and 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 david cameron was a proponent of this when we were the head of the, the the g7 or g8 as it was then i think um this notion of beneficial ownership transparency so um we introduced the laws that that are now current in the UK for declaring um, persons with significant control. It doesn't work terribly well, but, but um, uh, they also decided to make the entirety of Companies House fully transparent and free to access, which, you know, I've obviously made a bit of a career out of, but, but it is, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, so, um, and we, the UK was the first in the world to do that. Now, some would say, yeah, but it's full of rubbish, but it may be full of rubbish, but at least it's freely accessible and transparent rubbish. So, so we yes. know that we're not relying on someone telling us it's all okay. And lots of other locations in the world will repeatedly tell you, yeah, ours is hidden, but oh, it's, it's ever such good quality. Well, to, how do we feel about taking the world, the word of people who sometimes are not noted for their, truthfulness it's um i'm not comfortable with that so um and we're seeing those dominoes fall now so we know across europe in successive uh, anti-money laundering directives there's been a requirement to open up beneficial ownership registries to some degree or other um i think that's a momentum that that is now unstoppable at least i hope it is yeah it seems like this has entered the the public's consciousness in a way that is irreversible so for example that i think it was the panama papers where you 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 could actually look at the money um kind of coming out of russia associate with that sort of inner circle of of those uh, sort of putin um yes. confidants and, and family members and friends from yeah. childhood and things like that and, and instances like that where you can suddenly get an insight into how things are really working amongst that um i mean I hate to use the phrase like global elite or something like that, but the power brokers are kind of in the world. Um, 
this is this so goes so far beyond where it it proves the point that that financial crime sort of underpins almost everything bad in yes. the world, right? Yes. It's, it's so it's so far reaching. Yes, because ultimately, almost all crime is acquisitive crime. Yeah, people people don't commit crime because they want to sell drugs or they want to traffic human beings. They do it because they want the money that it generates. I mean, other than you know the the the, the the crime passionnel, you know, crimes of passion. Yes. Um, all, all crime is there. I mean, you know, I, I go back to a time when people used to go into banks with, with tights on their heads and sawn off shotguns and hold them up. But when was the last time you, you saw a bank being held up by people with, yeah. you know, stockings and shotguns? It doesn't happen anymore. Because why would you do that? You, there are better ways of doing it. So, so, so nobody's wedded to particular crimes. And actually, we're seeing moves away from, from the, the drug trade simply because cybercrime is a lot easier and you can do it from your bedroom and, you, and it's <laughs> a lot less risky. So, um, so ultimately, all crime is acquisitive, and all and, and corruption, of course, is is by its very nature acquisitive. Yes, but but none of that is really much use if you now live in a world where you can't spend criminal funds without first disguising them to make them look like they aren't criminal, and that means financial crime is endemic throughout the world and and accounts for a very significant amount of global economical activity. But but the point here is is I, I use this you know if you go back to your school days this thing about osmosis it's a one-way flow through a, a semi-permeable membrane which is the offshore industry so that money is flowing out of countries where a few people have access to most of the wealth into countries where that wealth can be stored legitimately and it's the great irony is that the one place that corrupt people don't want to keep their money is in the corrupt countries they generate it from <laughs> because it's full of other corrupt people so you know, and, and who loses here? Well, just ordinary people. It's the ordinary yes. people in places that, you know, it's very easy to typify as, you know, ex-commies. But but I mean, you know, somebody in, in Kurdistan in, in, or Kazakhstan or, uh, you know, Azerbaijan or Ukraine, ordinary people are ordinary people. It doesn't matter where you go. They're just ordinary people. And their hard-earned money and taxes and whatever are being stolen from them. And they're not paying for their schools and their roads and their health service. They're paying for somebody to buy a house in park lane that they only live in two weeks a year because it's not really there to live in it's there to shelter their money it's a global disgrace yes and we should get angry about it and and i do obviously. Uh, yeah so, well you're um, you're actually doing something about it can i can i fire some naive yeah. questions at you about yes. it like potentially naive questions about it so so it's a bit like in in cyber of course which is heavily related as well isn't it it's like the tools of the bad guys well, the tools of the good guys get better. The tools of the bad guys get better, and there's it's yeah. like an arms race, and no one's ever winning, or, or rather, there's always a bleeding edge of the bad guys that are sort of staying ahead of the the good guys. Yeah. Like, is it? I can could someone shrug their shoulders and say it was ever thus? You know, why expend too much energy and thought on it? And and you know, if we don't improve the tools that the good guys have got, you know, the the bad there'll just be a certain percentage. Yeah. There always will be, and th and that's that. Like I, someone's probably run the numbers to know what percentage we're losing out of GDP to the black market. Yeah. You know, but this century versus last century and things like that. I'm sure that exists. Like, what what's your view on that? Um, I try not to be cynical about it. And one of the difficulties is that lots of 
you know, lots of the risk, particularly in the financial service, lots of the risk that banks face are bottom line um, negative. So, so if you have credit risk and you, you lend to the wrong person, they default, it's got a hit on your bottom line. And one of the issues with financial crime is because there's lots of organisations, and I'm not going to say willingly or knowingly, but lots of organisations make profit from it. So there yeah. is an economic, there is a hit. I mean, uh, but I, you know, I I do genuinely believe that, that we need to... Um, not be cynical about it and actually there's events in the last few days that are not financial crime related but actually give me some some encouragement so we're, we're recording this at a time when our prime minister in the uk has been rather embarrassed um, by being dragged into the house to apologize uh, and and that was that came to light and i think you know we live in a world where it is harder to hide these things we've got yes. novak djokovic in in australia who's had to admit that he he did not quarantine himself so yeah it's becoming hard and, and why did that happen because we have transparency because i mean people post stuff on their social media accounts and then realize that probably wasn't very sensible but but that's the world we live in now so i think connecting the dots and some of the technology is becoming very good at it um is is a way forward but we have to have access to the dots in order to connect them so that's why transparency is is just is just so important yeah but i i you know, I, I keep the faith here. I think we will get there. You're you're firmly in the uh, what is it? Sunlight is the best disinfectant yeah. camp. Yes. Um, and it, and, it, and I mean, we talked, touched on this a, a moment ago. The result of a lot of this transparency is, of course, that um, uh, trust in our institutions is lower than it's ever been, or and, yeah. and in politics and. Um, and the banks and and do you think this is a, a temporary state of affairs then and in the long run going to be in better shape yes because i think you know there's always a lag between the perception of something wrong and, and it correcting itself and because our institutions are still rather built on uh, the framework of a kind of that kind of benign patriarchy or just what yeah. you know, leave it with us and because that doesn't exist anymore because of the internet because of the connectedness of the world because of social media people now have access to information that they've never previously had now they don't always use it very wisely and 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 you know the social media has empowered people to 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 effectively be more influential that maybe the you know people are prepared to say stuff over the internet they would never <laughs> say to your face you know yeah so so we're still going through i think a period of um renegotiating our relationship with the world and and i guess it's not that dissimilar from the industrial revolution where you know where we had the the, the original saboteurs who came in with their sabots and and smashed up mechanisms and machines because they were very threatened by it um we know that you, you're not going to stop that progress from happening and i think we still haven't gone through that readjustment um uh, of democratizing you know the world that people have a much more uh, interaction with the world rather than just allow the elites to tell them what they need to yeah do. some of the language that we're using there sounds like something out of the uh, the the crypto yeah. marketing literature what, what's your view on crypto from both a financial crime point of view but also transparency I mean, I think it's a challenge in, in the world generally is that the one big difference between now and 200 years ago with the Industrial Revolution is that you pretty much 200 years ago, you pretty much everything you experienced, you understood. 
you know, because it was through personal experience. Now, we, we have to take 99% of the world on trust now because we, we know so much about how everything works. You can't possibly be an expert in, in everything. Yeah. I mean, you just look at, you know, actually the basic building blocks of the world are so complicated that very few people understand the quantum physics and all the rest of it. So yeah. I guess one of the challenges about crypto and 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 the blockchain, and I'm always very careful to separate those out because they're such different things, um, is, is understanding how it works. And if you don't understand how it works, it can seem like, you know, magic. It's like, well, how can a bit of computer code be worth any money? But, but in a way, well, how's a £5 note worth any money? Well, it's, it's because the government says it's worth £5. So we, we take that on trust. But, but there are stuff like diamonds that, that have value, but they don't have any intrinsic value. So I, actually, I'm not sure I see any great difference between a Bitcoin and a diamond. It's just a, one's a physical thing and one's a digital thing. But neither of intrinsically worth anything at all. It's just what people think they are worth. And diamonds are worth what they're worth because De Beers keep about 90% of the entire production yes. in a vault, you know, to, to, to manage the market. So, um, again, I think it's it's a... I, the blockchain, I think, is is an extraordinary thing, and the ability to have this, you know, distributed network, which can um, effectively allow a level of um, security uh, that that hard to achieve any other way, is uh, is incredible. And I think we haven't scratched the surface of what yeah. we can achieve through that sort of. Uh, and crypto, you know, I mean, again, the point with crypto is that unless and until governments can can have a kind of government controlled crypto. Um, currency, which I don't think they're going to manage easily. Um, it, it is democratizing um, the ability to move value around the world, and that's threatening for governments, but interesting for you and me. It, it, it is interesting, isn't it? And I, I sort of feel like whenever you take that through to its logical conclusion, um, it's like, why would a government then uh, want to allow that to happen? Yeah. Uh, and of course, we, we know that some don't, and that's already happening. I. Uh, well, I don't know if you have an opinion on where we're going to go on that. You know, some one or two things about regulation, don't you? What's your yeah. prediction there? Um, I, I think regulators are still struggling to understand how best they can regulate this this situation. I think um, you know it, it's hard, and you fear what you don't understand. So, so that's that's kind of uh, that's an understandable point of view. Um, you know, governments. I tend to be protective of themselves. It's very odd that that, that we elect governments for, for all of the people, but actually they're never governed for all the people. They govern in a way to try and stay in government. So so yes. it's you know it's it's um it's yeah. it's a difficult conversation and and the, the the you know it's a bit like it's like encryption. I always think that's a difficult conversation because ultimately encryption is good because it allows us to, to, to have privacy. But then at what point is it bad because it allows bad actors to be able to, to, to converse in a way that no one can access those conversations? So there's always this trade-off between the individual's liberty and yeah. the social good. And I, I, I don't think we're ever going to resolve that. It's just a question of charting a course that works for the majority, I guess. Yes. For the balance of freedom means safety. Yes, it's very yeah. topical over the last couple of years, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, you've got the you've saved the conversation with Ray about naming the podcast "The Dark Money Files." Hmm. Um, I feel like that would make a perfect NFT. <laughs> yes, Just, I've thought about if that. You, if you go down yeah. that route as the <laughs> ideas guy. I, yeah, I think a percentage. <laughs> yeah, it's it is odd, isn't it? How how 
I mean, Ray and I were in business for many, many years, and we, our original company was called GR Business Process Solutions, and that was Grove and Ray. Um, and and the reason we we chose GR Business Process Solutions is that the domain grbps.com was available, so we kind of retrofitted our name. Then we, when Ray came up with the Dark Money Files, we just thought straight away it's a great name. But and and it was only after we we thought of the name that we then. We, we registered it as a trademark and we bought the domain name and we bought the company. So it was it was actually come up with the name first and then followed suit. But it it wasn't deliberately to create a brand. It was just because we love the name. But it is interesting how that's become a brand. And it was serendipity. It wasn't it wasn't by yeah. design, but but it's now become a kind of, you know, it, 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 people know what it is just by the dark money files. And that's been quite instructive um do you what's the, what does the future hold for the dark money files because it's a podcast is, is that it's also the name of the training company the yes. through whom you deliver your services yeah yeah. It, it, yes i mean there's a number of projects i mean clearly the dark money files lends itself to a book and in fact ray and i've talked about that today um so so i think some sort of dark money files book will, will at some point see the light of day um we we're in so many different conversations with so many different people clearly we, we have domain expertise that is quite um niche but but reasonably valuable so i think there are some some good we're already um publicly associated with 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 some companies ripjar is one where we sit on the advisory board and other startups so um working with lots of new tech uh to to help them to understand the world that we occupy um i i it is my intention, if not to fully retire, to at least semi-retire, because there are so many things that I still want to do in life. And, and you know, I'd, I'd like to do them while I'm still reasonably compostmentous. Uh, Ray's got a good working life ahead of him. So I think um, I will help and support him with the development of the brand while I try and take a little bit more of a back seat. Uh -huh. What so what, what does Graham Barrow do for fun outside of uh uncovering uh illicit activities i i would love to go back i used to be what was known as a bedroom musician which is i i had um computer software and i used to write music i, I still do occasionally in fact the, the the music you hear on the dark money files is mine that's my own composition i have a i have a soundcloud page um, for those of you who like your music, will know SoundCloud. I'm inordinately proud of the fact that my I've had about sixty thousand downloads of my music. Which you is, can you can plug it on here if you like. I, I it's it's just Graham Barrow on SoundCloud. You know, um, it's a very eclectic mix. I, I I used to do a lot of electronica, I, I some really weird stuff, and and a bit kind of more melodic stuff as well. So. Um, I, I uh, you in the background obviously your listeners can't hear this but it's slightly blurry but there's a guitar in the background and which I play awfully badly um but I quite like sitting down and and just strumming around a guitar and and writing songs so I'd, I'd like to do that a bit more and I love traveling so so I think my wife and I are looking for um the opportunity to do it when when the coronavirus allows yes. a little bit more traveling as well we're in the worlds on the agenda um we were going to go we had booked and then had to to move it we were going to go to the gambia in a in about three weeks time but it didn't seem a very appropriate time to be going there but um we we kind of 
I mean, I've been very fortunate because I, with my work, I've traveled all over the world and um, I would love to take my wife to India, which is just one of the most extraordinary countries. And I've, I've traveled quite extensively in India, um, which has been superb and, and love it. Again, Southeast Asia, I think is an extraordinarily fascinating place to, to see. I would like to see the Northern Lights as well um, before I die. I have never seen the Northern Lights, so that's definitely on the card. So. Um, yeah, just places that are um, interesting. Very good. You work with a lot of reg tech companies uh, yeah. and advise, you know, you mentioned uh, one or two of them. And I know that uh, LexisNexis Risk were involved when you yeah. were first kind of setting up the, the workshops uh, that you were, you were doing. With your, your kind of unique perspective, intrigued to get your thoughts on where you see the reg tech industry headed and and I mean you can, I guess take that do with that what what you wish whether it's yeah. it's like where the opportunities are for technology companies or how the market's going to change. Um, I think like many of these things, it's going to be um, there's going to be lots and lots of startups which over the next five, ten, fifteen, twenty years will ultimately consolidate into rather fewer but probably better. Um, placed to to make a difference uh, there is this really interesting at the moment because lots of people are coming into our world who don't have a background in financial crime mm. or whatever they're, they're data scientists they are you know there's these amazingly uh, clever people who could write python or who can do you know who can do um, mathematical algorithms which are mind-bogglingly complex who, who have background in ai and machine learning and deep learning uh, and i guess the, the 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 successful ones would be the ones who can bring together that domain expertise in ai um, with a deep understanding of how the world works in terms of financial crime and deliver products which can work accordingly very interesting ray actually posted an article earlier on this week about aml is not supposed to be easy and i think that's a really important point is that if we are waiting for some of these products to come along and be magic bullets we'll wait forever i think what some of them will do and the ones that we're keen to work with are let's do the stuff that doesn't have to have human beings um, through these products and so let's get rid of a lot of the wasted effort and let's use our our valuable human resource where it's most needed because you know if you think like transaction monitoring is like 97 percent or whatever of all alerts are false positives what a heartbreaking job to, to spend 97 you know. percent of your time saying it isn't a problem i mean that's you know you'd much rather spend a lot get that three percent that are and and really you know understand what's going on better and let the machines work out what's not a problem that's that you know as long as they're doing it accurately that's a much better use of of our time but again i'd much rather see the machine say you haven't got to worry about that uh, and let the humans look at the stuff that you you know you, you do yes. need to worry about any observations on who's doing that better you don't obviously have to mention company names but but you know, if I, when I look at founding teams, sometimes to your point that you've just mentioned there, you've got people coming into the industry um, who who have no background in uh, compliance um, yeah. uh, or financial crime or or anything like that. And it's sometimes because so much of it obviously is a data issue. You, you have people maybe with a solution looking for a problem to solve, don't you? That when it comes to AI and 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 some of these tools, and and that's how they find themselves in this industry. I, I have as someone who's probably worked with a few of them. Do you have any observations there? Who's doing it better? Um, 
I think I think lots of people are going through very steep learning curves. I mean, the, the thing with a lot of, particularly with the fintechs, um, it, it is pretty low margin business. I mean, that's what they've come at. They've come, they are disruptive because they're automating a lot of stuff. Um, the the of low margin business is when you then discover that, that the criminals out there, as go back to our early conversation, are very often one step ahead and have already worked out how they can circumvent some of your controls to, to their own advantage, can be a bit tough when you realise that the regulator is now breathing down your neck because you haven't got enough robust controls in place. So I think ultimately, I think what we've got are, are different strands of technology being developed that will have to come together. One of the things I'm very interested in are, are a couple of things. One is synthetic data. And I think that's a really interesting area where we're actually producing non-personalized information, which, which replicates the data that you would see on a general basis going through a bank and actually which you can tune. So you can start tuning your controls to see if they are effective against certain typologies rather than wait to see if that typology happens to you and find out you're not. You know, that's not a good way of doing things. So I'd love the idea that you can actually seed data into a system that's synthetic that sees whether your system is working properly i think that alongside there are some 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 big words here but homomorphic encryption so this ability to share information between um, different entities that allows us to get a much more global view of what's going on so i think we're seeing strands of um technology being developed which ultimately i think we're either going to see joint ventures or, or amalgamations where those different strands can be worked into a cohesive structure that, that can then address a lot of these problems. I, I mean, you know, I, I, it doesn't take a genius to work out that one or two of the main player like Revolut had a fairly difficult journey into the light because, yes. you know, they kept they kept having issues. Uh, Monzo, I kind of got a bit more sympathy for Monzo have had some really good, they did a fantastic piece of work a couple of years ago around hacking and Ticketmaster, where Monzo were aware ahead of Ticketmaster that they'd been a hack and were saying to Ticketmaster, you've been hacked. Um, obviously, they've had a bit of a bad press as well. So, you know, these people are learning, but we've got to find a way to, to, to not knock them, to say, look, you're going to make mistakes, but we really need to encourage them to do what they're doing because it's going to, it is going to change the landscape. So it's it's um continued you know it, it, let's not be too censorious that that's yes. trying to be encouraging progress can be a bit messy it, it but... can and it should never stop you calling out where they do things wrong it's just how you deal with those misdemeanors you know i'm not i'm not actually a massive fan of huge fines actually because ultimately it's only the it's only the public who pay for the fines i think we need yeah. to find a better way of encouraging firms to to do the right thing without just keep smacking around the head with a big financial penalty do you are you talking about prison sentences um i'm talking about no, I mean, you know, there, 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 there's two ways to get the best. I mean, if you think about parenting, there are two ways to get the best out of children. One is by by constantly putting them on the naughty step. And one is by by finding ways to, to, to help them to behave better, which they want to do. Yes. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm a great believer in the, in the latter. I think the, the best thing with kids, and I wouldn't say I'm, you know, I'm necessarily the best at this, but but actually is to is to get them to change their ways because they can see a better way of doing things and not because they're trying to avoid pain. I don't yeah. I, you know, I, I'm not, you know, inflicting pain on children isn't a great idea, I don't think. Um, no. Give, giving them a, an advantage from doing something differently. And why, you know, why don't we try that approach with firms as well? 
It's a good point. And I, if I was to take your analogy and, and try and run with it a little bit, you know, when it comes to kids, uh, they they look at the example that you set, don't they? And, and yeah. so if you're behaving in a certain way, they're often likely to uh, emulate that. And, yeah. and I guess when we're talking, it comes down to culture. So if in uh, it, uh, to a certain extent, there's a, a mirror of what they're seeing in, in maybe po- politics and government and what is deemed acceptable and unacceptable and, and business will, to a certain yeah. extent, um, follow that perhaps. perhaps. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, we talk about tone from the top. I mean, that's tone in individual, individual companies. And, and one of the things I'm very passionate about is when they talk about a company's culture. Well, a company cannot have a culture. A company is an inanimate object. It doesn't exist in any sentient form. The culture is the people. And I think it's unhelpful to talk about a company culture. I think we should talk about the culture of the board, because that's what sets the tone in the business. And not, the company, you know, it, 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 as I say, it doesn't independently have any sort of um, emotions. You yeah. Know? And, and that's, I think we do need to focus. And, and I think it would be a good thing if we were calling out good behaviours as loudly and as vociferously as we can yes, call out bad ones. Hmm. That's a very good point. Uh, you said you mentioned a type of technology that I was that was had a complicated name. I think I feel like it was homomorphic encryption. Encryption was it? Was that right? Homomorphic. Homomorphic encryption. That's the ability to produce. It's, it's, it's a good word, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I haven't made it up. I promise you, it is the ability <laughs> to produce data, which which is is capable of interrogation and getting intelligent answers from without disclosing the underlying personally identifiable information that um, is, you know, that, that was encrypted into this homomorphism. So in a way, so, so simply, it would be a way, for example, of sharing, for example, transactional data, which you could actually interrogate intelligently without revealing the underlying information about whose data it was in the first place. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very good. Okay. I normally have one final question that I end all of the interviews with, and that is um, if Graham Barra could go back in time and offer one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would it be? Um, It would be believe in yourself a bit more. It it just... Just and I'm I can't be unique in this in, in as much as, you know, I've always believed that the biggest challenges the biggest hurdles we place in front of ourselves are the ones that we do ourselves not the ones that are around us um if if i believed in myself a bit more as an 18 year old i i I don't necessarily mean i would have had a more successful life in terms of earnings i can't complain about my life it's it's been quite you know reasonable um but i I could have achieved more and, and it's only now in my very later years i feel that i i you know i was capable of doing i'm still capable hopefully of doing more but I could have achieved much more had I believed in myself more as an 18 year old but I mean there was a whole history of you know a, a, a relatively difficult childhood what well, I don't have to go into it now but but you know self-belief is a wonderful thing for yeah. those who have it as long as you maintain a sense of context to that don't believe in it too much but, but, <laughs> but do you know what I mean because that, that yes. becomes arrogance and that's not very pleasant but but a quiet self-belief is probably one of the most um helpful abilities that anyone can have agreed fantastic graham barrow thank you so much thank you